Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. Built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Between the Lines, the podcast that deciphers the handwriting unfolds faded pages and dips into the details of diaries, logbooks and letters written during this same week, there or thereabouts, in 1943, some 80 years ago. Let's start with a quick recap of the situation. It's the second week of May 1943. And on the 12th, General Hans-Jürgen von Armin personally surrenders his forces in Tunisia to General Francis Tuca in Cap Bon. The following day, the 13th, the Allies announced their complete victory in North Africa. It's a big moment in the war, although in Spain, Generalissimo Francisco Franco is unimpressed. The present worldwide conflict, he tells the press, has reached a dead point and neither side now has the power to destroy the other. Indeed, this is the week Adolf Hitler signs a decree with the intention to extend his dictatorship indefinitely. However, President Roosevelt and Winston Churchill have a much shorter time frame in mind. This is also the week they meet for the latest round of joint staff talks. And for the first time, the conference, codenamed Trident, is taking place in Washington, D.C. There is much for them to discuss. It'll take time for details of their decisions to reach the Allied forces that are now being deployed worldwide. But the news about a shift in the balance of power in North Africa is spreading much faster. Let's rejoin Captain Bertie Packer, commanding the mighty battleship HMS Warspite, as he's bringing his ship and crew back to Britain for a short refit. Saturday, 8th of May. Northwesterly Gale Force 8. Shipping a lot of water. Ship's company in great heart with leave ahead and don't give a damn for the weather. I hear whistling and singing everywhere. Great news at 06.15. Tunis and Bizerta are ours, but no details. No Dunkirk either, I fancy. Monday, 10th of May. Steaming up the Firth of Clyde, the mountains white with snow. A bitterly cold homecoming, but still beautiful. Made fast at 7.30am to the boy opposite Prince's Pier, Greenock. A whole bunch of aircrafts from Joy Joy arrived, but still no clue of what ship she had gone in. Absolutely grand hearing of all her ups and downs and how kind people had been to her, 
and how Leonard Moore was encouraging her about her book, Pack and Follow. It's all very astonishing being back in the Clyde again. I left two months ago and since then have spent three weeks in dear South Africa. No more news of what we are to do, of course, and can't make up my mind what to do with myself. Tuesday, 11th May. Letter from Philip Rhodes, bless him, asking me to stay. Then a letter from Phil and Nancy Glover asking me to come and stay and play golf. So I made up my mind to go to London, stay at Athenaeum Court, visit the Admiralty and see my friends. Ted Merritt sent me a long letter from Joy. Went for a long walk in the dog watches. Still very cold, but the spring is very beautiful on the hills over Greenock. Friday, 14th of May. The fighting in North Africa is over. It is terrific. 176,000 prisoners. The Germans finally crumpled. A classic example of the military art, it was called in the house. Atlee, I think. Winston was already in Washington. I think he must have gone in the Queen Mary. Things are moving, and I only hope we will move towards the Med and be in the next attack, wherever it is. I think it likely, as we are taking on special shells. Saw Angus Cunningham Graham, captain of the Kent and Patricia. Also Betty Joel, the internal decorator, a fat, squat, red-haired person roaring with personality. Here my old friend PJ Mack was killed in an air crash on his way to the Med to take over a command. What a waste. Captain Packer is referring to his good friend Rear Admiral PJ Mack, who was one of a small group of VIP passengers on a low-key flight from RAF Chivner out to Gibraltar. Bad weather brought the Lockheed Hudson down and sadly, everyone on board was killed. The five flight crew, plus two Royal Navy commanders, Mack and Captain Sir Thomas Beaver, two Canadian commanders, Major General H. Samuel and Lieutenant Colonel C. Finlay, and Lieutenant Colonel G. Wilson, who had not long been appointed to the position of General Staff Officer for the British 3rd Infantry Division. Flying accidents were an all-too-frequent occupational hazard during the war. Those on board weren't the first, and they wouldn't be the last senior commanders to lose their lives in such a way. All five men were en route to take part in planning meetings for the invasion of Sicily. It's strange how common names seem to jump out at you after a while. We know another man named Wilson, Corporal Harry Wilson. We join Harry now, out in the Middle East, still working as a cipher clerk, still getting to grips with the daily rituals of the British Army. Sunday night, great news. Tunis is occupied by General Alexander's first army, and Bessert has been taken by the Yanks. General von Arnen's army of 150,000 is cut in two and badly disorganised and most of the troops are seeking refuge in Cape Bon Peninsula. Wednesday the 12th yesterday was a day of shifting a boat for medium grade cipher operators. Captain Hoyle was right. Signals don't care for us very much. FFI in the afternoon that's a free from infection inspection. Cyphers sauntered down by themselves and tagged onto a queue a hundred yards long. The MO decided to waste no time. Stripped to the waist, each man was dealt with about five seconds. Skin complaints, eye trouble, teeth trouble, and down below, is there anything wrong? I had no one answer yes to any of these questions. But there's something else that's been bothering me. Birch, Blackburn, Corporal French and I are sleeping in our new room now. Every morning, the orderly officer calls in to inspect our beds, which are required to be laid out with our kit on top of them, in so elaborate a manner 
that an official chart is necessary to explain it. Of all military rituals, this is the one that exasperates me most. It does so not because I resent the discipline, but on rational grounds. Because it is unnecessary and senseless. I cannot understand it. I cannot understand the mentality that prescribes it. If I had the power, I should like to gather all the commanding officers in the British Army into a large hall and say to them, We're not living in the 18th century, no. We change from bows and arrows to muskets, from muskets to machine guns, from mules to horses to tanks and lorries, from ignorant and dishonourable soldiers to intelligent and reliable servicemen. And yet so many of the old rituals persist. Morning after morning, I'd say, you compel intelligent men to arrange their kit with more precision than a West End shopkeeper for no reason at all. Except it's an old army custom that nobody yet has had the sense to abolish. And I'd, I'd, I'd carry on, I'd go, it happens because it always happened. And it's never occurred to any of you to question it. Go back to your units and tear those charts down from the barrack walls. That's what I'd say. Order a kit inspection once a week and tell your orderly officers to ignore the position of the water bottle in relation to the blankets and all that nonsense. That's what I'd say as well. Why can't they be reasonable? Why can't they do the same service for the army as Luther did for the church? Rid it of useless rites and ceremonies. Friday 14th, the heaviest rip attack yet made on Duisburg and the last shot fired in Africa. Total number of prisoners not yet known, but 150,000 has already been counted. In fact, Harry's underselling the Allied victory. Over a quarter of a million Axis troops were now in the bag in Tunisia, not to mention the huge amount of aircraft, tanks, guns and other war material destroyed and captured. Let's move north now, back to the war in Europe, where technology and tactics are making it easier for the Allied forces, at least, to find and hit industrial targets more precisely. At RAF Scampton, those tactics have translated into a complex plan that, at this point in time, is being kept a closely guarded secret. Today, it's common knowledge. 617 Squadron was already practising its low-level approaches to three dams, the Mona, the Sopa and the Eda. As you know, Jim and I have just been out to see the flight paths firsthand, and we've got some more insights coming up over the next couple of weeks. In May 1943, though, Flight Lieutenant Charlie Williams cannot share the details of what he's doing where he's flying, or what his target will be, with anyone. Least of all, the new love of his life, Bobby. May 8th. My darling Bobby. I was so pleased to hear your voice on the phone today, but sorry we had such a short talk. One cannot say much in three minutes. It's better than nothing. I feel like a million dollars and I feel like half a dozen whiskies and then I would like to take you in my arms and dance you around around the room. But unfortunately, I cannot get in to have even one drink. May 9th. My darling Bobby, first of all, in case I do not get to see you during the next week or so, please don't get wrong ideas. Don't think that I'm spending any time in Lincoln with a blonde or that I've forgotten you or I've developed cold feet. There are so many things I want to ask you. I feel like that I want to hold you in my arms and make love to you. I may do one night this week, but I don't think there is much chance. I'm very busy at present and likely to be for some time. May 11th, my darling Bobby. 
I expect you will want to know why I didn't write to you yesterday. I travelled all the way to see you the night before, but you were not there. I was the most disheartened and disappointed man this side of Gravesend. I had every reason to find a giddy blonde and go gay with her, but I did not do that. Reg was funny. He asked me, when's it going to be? And I said, I don't know. I have no idea when I'll get leave. I did quite a long trip today and I'm feeling rather tired. Still thinking about my wasted evening. You have no idea how disappointed I was, darling. May 12th. My darling Bobby. This letter may not be very long, but I will write as much as time permits. I'm writing this in the crew room and may be called away any minute. I received your letter at lunchtime. I'm sorry I didn't get the point about the church, but on reading the letter again, I wonder why I didn't see through it before. I developed a headache about half an hour before lunch and then have not got rid of it yet. It will most likely pass away by the evening. Did not work last night at all. I wish I could have time with you this week. Darling, I've been thinking about our weekend together. We had a very nice time in spite of the difficulties. Never mind. Things should be much better next time. May 13th. My darling Bobby, I've just received your letter and was so pleased to hear from you. I'm sorry you couldn't get me on the phone, but I'm away at all hours of the day and I never can see when I will be here. I will ring you up as soon as I get the chance. Of course I still love you as much as ever, darling. Don't you worry your head about the trouble you're causing me. We should not have to seek dark corners to say goodnight. May 14th. My darling Bobby, it was so very nice to hear your voice on the phone today. But three minutes is so short, and I didn't seem to have nearly enough time to say all I wanted. I'll do my best to get in on Sunday, darling. I'm longing to see you, but just can't get away. I'm getting rather tired from all the work I've been doing lately. It's been wonderful weather the last two days. Yesterday was so warm. Flying, we're all in our short sleeves. They were very excited at home the other day to hear Flight Lieutenant Norman Barlow and I had taken part in the Berlin raid. I didn't intend letting the cat out of the bag for a week or so, but most of the chaps had been guessing about it. Well, darling, I will have to cut this short as I must have some supper and prepare for the night's work, so you'll have to be content with a short letter. I have nothing more to say except that I love you as much as ever and I'm looking forward to seeing you. Cheerio, darling. All my love, Charles. Charlie mentions being called away any minute, but we know he's probably flying on a schedule, as 617 Squadron had a very specific target in mind, although the date for the raids had yet to be confirmed. That said, major attacks were being launched day and night against Germany's industrial heartland and against military targets too. This week, from its bases in East Anglia, the US 8th Air Force sends out 109 fortresses and 21 B-24s to carry out a raid on the Krupp submarine building works, which is large construction sheds at Kiel. The raid is relatively successful from the Allies' perspective, although they do run into a number of enemy fighters over the coast. Among those pilots is Hauptmann Heinz Nocker, and we join him now as he's dodging the flak from his own guns over the coast of Germany. May 14th, 1943. The enemy raids Kiel. We go after him with our bombs. Several times I try a formation attack 30,000 feet above Holstein, but every time the enemy formation weaves out of the way below, 
it seems they have guessed our intentions. Over Kiel, we run into a heavy flag of our own guns. The shooting by the Navy is so good, unfortunately, that we are considerably disorganized. I observe the Yank bombing. They dump their load right into the Germania shipyards. I'm impressed by the precision with which these bastards bomb. It's fantastic. My chance of bringing off a formation drop has gone by now, so I sent the flight in one at a time. My own bomb fails to explode, but hits are registered by the flight sergeants Führmann and Fest and Sergeant Biermann. Three of the fortresses are destroyed in mid-air. Once again relying on my guns, I die for a frontal attack against the formation of some 30 fortresses. Almost at once, I feel a hit in my fuselage, and I have to abandon the attack. My engine runs smoothly, however, and all the controls seem to be working. I try another frontal attack. My first salvo goes in, right in the control cabin of the fortress. It rears up, like a great animal that has been mortally wounded, and drops away in steep spirals to the right. At about 10,000 feet, a wing breaks off. It crashes near Husum, and I get home with several holes in my fuselage and tail. Today, my flight has shot down five heavy bombers. The total credit has now reached 50 heavy bombers, with the 50th brought down by Flight Sergeant Venikas. Thus, my number five flight is now credited with shooting down as many heavy bombers as the squadron headquarters and number four and six flights altogether. In an inspection of the squadron later in the afternoon, General Galant, the general commanding the German flight command, comes to sign our visitor's book. He offers his good wishes and congratulations on our 50th heavy baby. We need to take a quick break. We'll be back with more from Between the Lines in just a moment. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Canva presents Unexplained Appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. 
Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. In the final days of the Tunisia campaign, prisoners have been coming in at the rate of over 1,000 an hour as both the Luftwaffe and the Italian equivalent, the Regia Aeronautica, abandoned the battle. Most of the commanders and many of the pilots flew out, escaping surrender, but leaving Axis ground staff without air support. And this translated to relative peace in the skies. In fact, the war diaries for the 56th Heavy Regiment tell us there was no artillery activity at all in their area this week. 14th to the 21st, training, resting and maintenance of equipment was carried on. So we shouldn't be surprised to find personal diary entries are concise too. Unless they're moving to a new position, it's all routine. This gives RSM Jack Ward a chance to catch up on the news that's now filtering through to all ranks, everywhere. 9th of May. Been to Tunis this afternoon. Are all the Arabs going back to their homes? There are about 2,000 prisoners in Tunis. Our signals interrupted a German wireless message saying they were going to try to evacuate from Cape Bon. The Navy's ready for them. We move at 6.30 in the morning. 11th of May. I've moved and we are now in a position south of Cape Bon. Very hot now. I've got some bites. Always in trouble. Understand that the French have been given the honour to finish off the battle. <laughs> Cape Bomb being described as a prisoner of war camp. Just a matter of mopping up now. Lots of prisoners coming in. Some Jerry's even driving in their own vehicles. May 15th. We have now moved up to the south of Cape Bomb. The show is over. And I wonder where we should be off to next. Some of the lads have gone for a bathe in the Mediterranean. We're near Carthage. I can see the ruins of the Roman aqueduct from here. The sun is very hot. I've just received three air letters. Two from Mum and one from Michael. Dated 2nd of May. Routine. It's a word that carries so much meaning, but it still translates to everything you're doing when you're not engaged in enemy action. Out in the South Pacific, Major General Oscar Griswold has shipped out to help support the fight in the South Pacific. It's taken him three weeks to get there, from island to island. Following the end of the battle on Guadalcanal back in February, there's been a lull in the fighting, which is good news for Oscar Griswold. It means he's got time to acclimatise to the conditions, but also train his men further before the next leapfrog, because by now the largest of the Solomons, the island of Bougainville, is firmly in US sights. And in amongst the routine of inspections and getting to know the men he's now working with, Griswold regularly makes side notes recording the actions he sees. 13th May, 1943. A month ago, we left home. We celebrated here in Guadalcanal by condition red. A big air dogfight took place off Guadalcanal. Enemy planes shot down, 16. Our planes down, 5. Two of our pilots rescued. Others probably lost. 
Last night, four Jap bombers bombed the area. One was caught on our searchlight. Looked like a silver moth. While in full view over the area, he was caught and exploded by one of our P-331s. The enemy ship exploded with a big detonation and flash of light. A very spectacular affair. 14th to 17th May, 1943. Routine. Inspections and interviews with various and sundry. Trying to cement friendly relations with Navy and Air. Apparently getting some results. Captain Shock, U.S. Navy, has been replaced by Captain Quigley. The latter is fine to work with. Getting in step with Commodore Michener in charge of air operations. Have better understanding now. Every week, Julia Blythe is writing to her son, Flight Lieutenant David Nairn Blythe, who's stationed out in Canada, where he's training to be a navigator in the RAF. Even though the conversation gets extended over a couple of weeks, Ma and David are managing to keep each other up to speed on family life. By the way, when Julia mentions Wings for Victory, she is, of course, referring to the fundraising campaigns that went on during the Second World War. Local communities, towns and counties set themselves targets to raise funds for the construction of more aircraft. In all, in the weeks that were specifically designated as Wings for Victory Weeks, the British public raised almost £616 million. That's the equivalent of about £28 billion in today's money. A phenomenal effort. Truly phenomenal. 11th of May. Dear David, I have just received the delicious chocolates, one box yesterday afternoon and the other this morning. They are in perfect condition and... Boy, did they taste good. We've all had a sample, including Mrs Patterson and her husband. They came by letter post and there was nothing to pay. All we can say is thank you very much. I shall buy you one saving certificate next week at our Wings for Victory. Joan has seen the Lancaster bomber up close and was very impressed. Tom was out on Sunday he sends his regards and says he envies you being able to visit the different cities. This will be your weekend to see Uncle Willie again, and I know you will enjoy yourself. David, I must go now. I sent you a letter on Sunday, so you can look out for it. All are well at home. I'd better close, as Joan is waiting to take this aircraft, and I want you to have it as soon as possible. Kindest regards to Frank, and love to you from all. Ma. Ma's son, Flight Lieutenant David Nairn Blythe, is being kept busy in the flight school at Port Albert, attending different courses each day. Each course was followed by an exam, of course. The pressure is on to increase the number of high-quality pilots and navigators available to Bomber Command. The technology is developing at pace, and so must they. The British Commonwealth Air Training Plan has been a good solution. It's quite intense. The men go through 125 hours of training in the classroom, but there's plenty of time in the air, too. However, when David's not sat at a desk, concentrating on getting his wings, it seems he's leading exactly the kind of life you might expect for a dashing 22-year-old. 11th May. Dear Ma, I'm so very pleased to receive your aircraft and I'm looking forward to your letter. Frank and I have been keeping up regular correspondence with Jean and also Aunt Joan since we saw them last. We're looking forward to visiting them again this weekend. They're busting to see us again and Frank and I can hardly wait. It's so nice to have home comforts when you're in the services, especially when it's from your own relations. Well, it's our final exams next week, and they last for about a fortnight. We don't have exams every day, 
but they are spread right across that period of time. We're due to pass out as air navigators, wow, 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 in about a month from now, and that will be a grand day for us all. However, we may not be coming straight home after that. There is a possibility we may be sent to some other part of Canada for an aerial reconnaissance course. It seems like a long time since I saw you all, and I'm missing you terribly. But I'll be home one of these days and we will have a real knees up. Meanwhile, you can be assured that I'm being well treated here and I'm happy. I'm not doing so bad with the girls either, by the way, even though I don't have much time. I've got a nice little girl locally, and I correspond occasionally with about five other dames in various parts of the country. Buffalo, Detroit, etc. A proper sailor I am. But nothing serious, ma. I'm just getting around and getting more experienced. I suppose Dad will be working hard as usual. Hope Joan is progressing with her job. Must say TTFN. Love, David. And finally this week, we have an update from someone who we've not met before, Dr Wilhelm Maus. Maus's war diary was published by his son several years ago. It's a huge volume of very detailed entries, covering not just Maus's own role in the war, but also his views on what was happening all around him. Wilhelm Maus was 40 when the Second World War broke out, but he was already an experienced soldier. He'd spent time on the Western Front during the First World War and was awarded the Iron Cross Second Class in 1918. In the Second World War, he's been back in uniform, but as a medical officer. Recently, he's been the Oberstarts, medical colonel, to the 20th Infantry Division on the Eastern Front. But on the 18th of March, he bid his team farewell and headed west, first to visit his family in Berlin and then on to Paris in France. He's about to fly to Rome to join the reforming 14th Panzer Corps as its chief medical officer. Maus is thrilled, both with the promotion and also because his old friend, General Hans Valentin Huber, has just been given command of the Corps. Before he takes up his new post in Italy, however, Colonel Dr Maus is still in Paris, where he learns of the disaster that has unfolded for the Axis in Tunisia. 9th May 1943. Dark clouds are on the horizon. The heroic battle in Africa comes to an end. Another heavy attack by the English and Americans broke through our northern front in Tunisia. This led to the capture of Bizerta and, after heavy street battles, to the capture of Tunis as well. Our southern group is still defending with determination. It will only be possible to keep this up for a few days against the pressure of this huge superior force. But the opponents could be delayed in their plans for over half a year. They lost valuable time, so this battle has not been in vain. However, it will be a big leap to come from Africa into Europe. The fences have been organized here in the meantime, and the Book of German Army will be opposing them. We have the advantage of an inner line that will stand against a landing attempt everywhere. Maybe we'll get a new task there ourselves sooner or later. We will encounter them with determination. There is no doubt about that. 14th May 1943. The battle in Tunis has ended. All ammunition and supplies have been used up, and the last of us on the central and southern front, and the men in the Generalberst von Armin, they all have to surrender. The small group held against the force ten times superior in strength over six months. It inflicted the heaviest of losses. It annihilated the plans for mutual pincer attack by England and America and Soviet Russia. They have fulfilled their task completely. Their glory will go on in the history of warfare.
That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. We do hope you found a little insight and were briefly entertained as we were reading. Between the Lines. Between the Lines is a We Have Ways production. Julia Mar Blythe is read by Ruth Sillers. David Blythe is read by Matthew Malthouse. Oscar Griswold is read by Michael Lyons. Chester Hansen is read by Lance Fuller. Veer Hodgson is read by Rachel Holland. Heinz Knocker is read by Lucas Veschler. Bertie Packer is read by Paul Waggett. Jack Ward is read by Adam Jarrell. Harry Wilson is read by Joel Emery. Narration is by James Holland and Al Murray. Editing by John Gill and Joey McCarthy. Written and produced by Merrin Walters. The executive producer is Tony Pastor. Tony Pastor.